Welcome to Level with Emily Reese. You are in for a treat with this special episode all about the launch of the original Xbox with Halo as a launch title. So I'll be speaking with two people in this conversation, Brian Schmidt and Marty O'Donnell. Now, the original Xbox launched November 15th, 2001. The person largely responsible for how audio worked in that original Xbox and what the Xbox would, you know, quote unquote, sound like is Brian Schmidt. Now, we've had Brian on the show in the past, most recently, to talk about Game Sound Con, which he runs in LA every October. But back to Xbox. Brian was working for Microsoft and began working on the Xbox. Uh, right away, as he'll tell you, and achieved many, many technological breakthroughs in this work. One of the launch games for Xbox in that winter of 2001 was Halo Combat Evolved, with music by Marty O'Donnell. And that was an audio achievement as well, as you'll hear Marty explain. Brian and Marty want to tell these stories of this remarkable time in the history of games, how Bungie refused even Bill Gates a key to their offices, how the Xbox almost didn't have Dolby surround sound, which is kind of amazing. It's all magical and great, and we start with Brian Schmidt. So Marty and I have been talking about this sort of off and on for quite a long time. Um, I don't know, so it, people know, right? Back in 2000, we were building an Xbox. I was on the team that made the Xbox. And at the same time, we're, you know, Marty's trying to ship Halo. Um, launch title, new console, uh, new audio system. And uh, you know, Marty and I just had this wonderful sort of back and forth thing of, you know, he, he's trying to get software work on a new console. We're trying to get the new console out. And we kept saying, you know, we really should like sit down and talk about this sometime because there's all sorts of crazy stuff that kind of happened along the way. And so that's that's kind of why I reached out. It's like, yeah, let's 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 do this. It's funny, Brian and I, I think um we're both from Chicago. Uh we both worked in the jingle business. Um which it was something I didn't even I wasn't even aware of right away, but we I think I'm trying to remember the first time we met Brian. Was it, I think it was 1996 because that's when I went to GDC, but I can't remember if I had met you before that or so it's at I, least 27 years we go back, which is I amazing. I think, um, I think the first time I met you in person because we had talked on the phone a bit. I think it must have been 96 because I remember bringing the PlayStation version of Madden to you, to your studio. Yeah. And um, and what was your connection with that game, Brian? Why did you bring that game to Marty? <laughs> oh, I, I did the music and sound for that game. <laughs> and Marty was um, getting into games. And I remember from that meeting, I just remember you saying, what the hell is this 80p, 80PCM crap they're making me use, Brian? You know, can you help <laughs> me learn, you know, help me understand a little bit more about the game stuff? Because this really sucks or something along the lines of that. Well, okay, so this is going to be funny. I mean, 27 years, we're, we're older people now. We have, our memories are slightly different. I remember you saying, yes, it's the game industry's 8-bit mono. And I'm like, yeah, I've run into that, but I can't do 8-bit mono. Like, that was what I thought was crap. And then 
it wasn't until I think you went to Q Sound and you contacted me and said, we have this new, I think it was an ADPCM thing that was 16-bit stereo compressed. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, I was thrilled with that because it was, now I could do stereo, I could do 16-bit, you know, dialogue didn't sound like everybody had a lisp. I mean, right. it was like, <laughs> remember that? The the 8-bit crunchy oh, yeah. count? 8-bit makes everything sound cool. Oh, sorry. Yeah, then everybody has a lisp. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I I actually was enamored with ADPCM or whatever that was that you showed me that was 16-bit. Was it a form of ADPCM? Oh, yeah. That's, that's actually, that's right. That It wasn't Q-Sound's ADPCM, but um, yeah, there was a form of AD. That's right. Boy, yeah, memories are different. I mean, I might have complained about it when we went a few years later to Microsoft, but it, yeah. when it first started in 96, I, I, that was what made me jump into game audio because I thought, oh, I can do 80pcm and stereo rather than 8-bit mono. I just, I was, right. I wasn't going to get into the game audio business if it was still 8-bit mono. I just could not do that. So I was just going to wait till somebody figured something out. And you got, you told me about it right away. And I went to the guys at Riven, uh, the sequel to Myst, <clears throat> Cyan, and I said, everything needs to be ADPCM. We need to do stereo. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why Riven sounded as good as it did and, and sort of stood out from other games at the time, because it was released in 97. Both uh, Myth the Fallen Lords for Bungie and... Um, Riven released in '97, and they were both ADPCM. Yeah, that, that, mm. that, that's right. That's I remember this now because the whole thing is is storage, right? We'd, up until yeah, you know, not that long ago, the you know we were all fighting against storage because you know, I you know when I, if I did a Sega Genesis game like Desert Strike or something like that, the entire audio footprint was like 64 kilobytes. I mean, like <laughs> massive memory constraints, and so 8-bit mono it turns out, uses the same amount of data as 16-bit ADPCM stereo, which is <laughs> same, crazy. Same footprint. Sa same memory yeah. footprint. And so I think that's what uh, got Marty able to do stereo. Um, it's yeah. like, yeah, hey, our memory footprint's the same, but I can do stereo when it's going to sound better. So 1996 is when you met. You agree on that? <laughs> yeah. I think so. That probably sounds yeah. about right. So it was uh, was it uh, and and that was when uh, GDC was still being called CGDC. CGDC and it was at Santa Clara Computer Game was that Computer what it was? Computer Game Developers yeah. Conference, yeah. yeah, yeah, CGDC. Okay, before wow. it was bought by big giant corporations, yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> which Marty loves so much. <laughs> <laughs> so in '96, Marty, you were in Chicago. Brian, were you still in Chicago or were you out west then? No, I was in Chicago still. I, oh, okay. um, I was okay. doing a lot of 16-bit uh, console games and arcade games. For, okay. um, actually, yeah, I was based in Chicago, but I was doing like games for EA and Sony and um, Sega and stuff. Mm -hmm, but I was mm -hmm. based in Chicago, which is where all the pinball machines that I used to work on get made. Yeah. And so I don't Midway. know what, what Midway. Williams Valley yeah. Midway, yeah, the old, the old days. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I think you called me, Marty. I'm not sure. I don't know where... Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure I called you because, um, and this is what I can't remember, I had been working since 93 to try to convince the guys at Cyan that I should be the audio guy for the sequel, uh, Riven. For Riven. Um, which was the sequel to Mist. 
And I was trying to figure out who could I, you know, get information from that would help me understand how to do audio for video games. Like what was unique about it? And I can't remember if it was because I saw Brian at GDC. I decided to go to GDC because I or CGDC because I thought that's where I'm going to get the information I'm looking for. That's where I'm going to see who my competitors are. And I'm going to see what you know what everybody's doing. And I had never done a thing in the, in the game industry, so there was a lot of people kind of looking at me like, "Who are you? And why are you here?" Um, but everybody was really nice. I met Tommy Tallarico, and mm. I, I'm sure I met Brian. Uh, for the first time, I'm pretty sure that's where we met for the first time. Uh, Scott Gershon, mm-hmm. uh, George Sanger. Um, it, it was a, it was a motley crew. Uh, it was a it was a blast, <laughs> though. I really had a good time. It was a small community. Everybody was friendly. Um, all the guys from uh, Lucas Arts, Michael Land, um, Peter uh, O'Connell, O'Connell, McConnell. Peter O'Connor, and, Mi- uh, Clint McConnell. Yeah. McConnell. yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was just a blast. And so I think I found out that Brian was in Chicago. So I called him and said, eventually, I just said, look, why don't you come over and like, I want to suck everything out of your brain so I can have it. (laughs) I don't think I said that, but. Because you were doing mostly jingles at that time, right? I was all, it was like, yeah, Yeah. film scores and jingles. We, you know, the idea of doing video games was, was not there at all until, until I saw Myst in 93. And then I thought, what I liked about Mist was the aesthetic, was music was used sparingly and, and emotionally, and it felt like a film score. The sound design and the music, or the sound design and the and the you know uh, dialogue, it was just it was just very 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 uh, aesthetically different than any of the games that I played. And I was a gamer; I love playing games, um, but it was it was now not the Nintendo wall-to-wall level music that was, you know, uh, MIDI-based, which, of course, it had to be. I understood why it was what it was. Um, but the guys who did uh, Mist, Cyan, were coming at it from a different aesthetic, and I thought, this is, if I don't get involved now, I'll, I'll miss the train. So <laughs> that's how that went. So I, I called Brian because I thought, okay, what in the world is this business? So, Which is ironic because that's exactly the opposite of the style of music I always used to do for for games because I was doing a lot of sports games. Mm-hmm. I did some fighting games. Uh did a lot of arcade games, which are sort of, you know, arcade games are sort of the original casual game. Sure. Right. Yeah. So um so although there was a lot of technical overlap, the aesthetics that, you know, I was like the antithesis of the Marty aesthetic as far <laughs> as the stuff that I was doing in games. <laughs> Well, I wasn't like I mean I wasn't calling Brian because I wanted to understand the aesthetic. I I thought uh, nothing against you, Brian, because I don't think I played many of those arcade games. I was of an age where yep. the arcade was, you know, I was too old for arcades. Mm-hmm. Uh, the games I played were um, a lot of, uh, I played a ton of Nintendo games. So, you know, I played Final Fantasy and, and Zelda and Mario. So I, I was, I, I love those games. But I wasn't in love with what the composers and sound designers were kind of forced to do based on the technology. Mm-hmm. So w- what I saw with Mist was, oh, there is a, a door opening now for the aesthetic to be more film filmic and and could be more dramatic and and just more more what I wanted to do. So, but technically, I had no clue. Like, how do you get audio into a game? Who are, who do you work with? How does this work? So. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, I think you, um, 
Oh, yeah, yeah. You hit it, or you, you recognized the coming change of industry. I, I'd argue that the real change really didn't occur till about 2000, 2001. But um, you definitely, for the style of games and the platforms, because those are PC games, right? Yeah. Um, PC games started to allow composers like Marty to enter the business where they couldn't before, right? It, right. We had these weird archaic skill sets that was a combination of music and technology and, you know, reading hexadecimal numbers and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> things like that. And I've always kind of argued, although, you know, the Saturn and the, the Sega Saturn and the PlayStation uh, came out in, you know, 95-ish era, and that was a compact disc, so you could, you know, go to a studio and record music, well, again, the first version of Madden, the only the only track that is recorded studio audio is the opening theme. All the other music in that game is MIDI because the disc is filled with Madden commentary. <laughs> of course. Um, I, I, there was another PlayStation game I did that had 3,000 lines of dialogue. And so they this com um, company had actually hired a composer like Marty who went into the studio and recorded all this stuff. And then when they went to try and put it onto the PlayStation and Saturn, they realized they could not have any, they could not use any of the music they recorded if they wanted to have all this dialogue. And it was a very dialogue heavy game. Incredible. And so I actually got hired just to literally take the stuff this other composer had done and try and mitify it using the Sega Saturn and the Sony PlayStation sound chip. So it, it, it was like a false start. Mm. Like, hey, CDs, we can do real music. Oh, not quite. There's not enough memory. Well, the problem was when when I remember when the CD CD ROM came in, and that was one of the things that um, was exciting about Mist was that it played off of a CD ROM, um, which, as a matter of fact, I think Mist probably sold more CD ROMs than than any other product out mm -hmm. there. It, it's just people once they saw Mist, they wanted to buy the CD ROM for their computers, um, but it was. Just because it was a CD, none of that was 16-bit. It was none of that was you know red book audio because right. the access time to play it was like you had to devote all of your CPU time to playing red book audio, and you couldn't play the game at the same time. So there was still a tech, the technology programming wise was still yeah. what is the game engine and how does the audio fit into that game engine. Yeah. Um, and but the processors on PCs were getting better enough. So that the amount of time, and of course, Brian knows this way better than I do, but the the amount of processing time it took to decode uh, ADPCM was really small. Uh, it wasn't that big of a hit on the processor. So 8-bit mono and ADPCM audio files had the same memory footprint, but the problem was that they does it take any more cycles to decode, right? And uh, right. there were some people that were a little bit worried about that, like really older computers might not be able to play this. And I'm like, who cares? If, you, if you're if <laughs> you smart enough to buy a CD-ROM, you're going to be able to, your computer's going to decode ADPCM. And if not, I don't care. I'm not doing it. <laughs> right. and, and then, of course, game developers realized, hey, 600 megabytes, which is about what a CD holds. Hey, we, we can... Put a four-minute cutscene video on that, and like That's boom, right. two you know three quarters of the disc is gone with that <laughs> now. Um, 
And that's why I, I kind of think that the real inflection point was about four or five years later, like in, when the PlayStation 2 and the original Xbox shipped and we and the industry moved from compact disc, which seemed awesome, but 600 megabytes is not that much. Oh, no. To DVDs, which is, you know, depending upon the size, like 4.6 or 7.2 gigabytes of data. And that's where, where the industry really had a giant inflection point where uh, the whole notion of MIDI-generated data or low sample rate music, even ADPCM, kind of started to go out the window. And you could actually have a 150 minutes of pre-recorded score that shipped with your game and still have room for the all the cutscene videos that they wanted. So so yep. that, you know, again, the PlayStation 2 and the original Xbox kind of is where that happened, I think. Well, so is- so Brian, remind me again, you went to a place called Q Sound not long after we met in Chicago, which you were I forget what you, what were you doing with Q Sound? Oh, I was a consultant for Q Sound. I actually started doing work for them right after I quit Williams, which was in 1989. So I'd oh, been a consultant okay. for Q Sound for about 10 years. And we did so this is a company that did 3D sound. Yeah. Back before 3D sound was and it was mostly the Q Sound was set up mostly to service the pro audio industry. So Sting used it, and Madonna used it, and Roger Waters used it. And um they contracted me. Because they had this scrappy little video game thing, and the board of directors said, "Hey, we think video games is a thing that might benefit from 3D sound. Go find somebody to do it." But we were kind of like the, we always felt like the kids' table at Thanksgiving at Q Sound, <laughs> right? Because everybody else was dealing with Madonna and Sting, and we were like, you know, figuring out the video game industry. So yeah, that was uh, kind of a separate thing there. So when did you go to Microsoft? I left my, uh, I stopped freelancing and went to Microsoft. Uh, 98. Mm. So the, uh, I kind of got a call out of the blue that just said, hey, because I was doing a lot of work with 3D sound cards before Microsoft. And there was a, there was a whole 3D sound cards war <laughs> that happened in the late 90s. That um, Creative Labs. Creative Labs, um, QSound, Aztec, ESS, Oriel. Yeah, there's all, a whole bunch of PC sound cards. It was a big thing back then. And so I'd done a lot of work on that. And then I got a random call from Microsoft. Hey, do you want to head up the gaming audio technologies? And then shortly after that, because um, I discovered that Microsoft was not super fun. But then at <laughs> one of the, uh, it's like I spent a year and like had one little thing that shipped in direct access. But then I got shown a PowerPoint deck by Seamus Blakely and Kevin Backus. Xbox. They kind of took me, they took me to the side. It was called Project Midway. They said, Hey, Brian, we understand you did a lot of work in console games. We want to show you this something. Are you interested in doing this? It was Project Midway at the time. And that was the slide deck that eventually became the Xbox program. And I was like, Fuck yeah, I want in on this. <laughs> sorry. sorry. I'm, Not at all. For, for, for Ed, it'll be like, Yes, that sounds very interesting. Please, 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 uh, please include me in your discussions. Um, and what year was that? That was 99. 99. So I'd been about, at for about a year. There was no Xbox program, except that Seamus, Sean, Otto Berkus, and one more. Shoot, what's the fourth member of the person who created the Xbox? Kevin Bacchus. 
Kev, no. Yeah, Kevin, Seamus, Otto, and somebody else that I... Oh, oh, I did you say Kevin already? All right. Yeah. No, but Kevin and, what, and Seamus were the ones that I knew the best. What's funny is I think because I, I had just started doing some some video game, you know, computer game um, sound, and we sounded music for Mist and Riven, and we were working on some other stuff. And uh, Microsoft flew me out along with a bunch of other... I had already I had already been flown out to Apple at one point, believe it or not. And I remember because Murray Allen was there. Oh, Brian yeah. Rem Brian yep. remembers Murray Allen. I worked, Murray Murray, Allen I worked to... with Murray on the Madden that I showed you. Yeah. Sure, <laughs> sure. Murray was had been a uh, big studio owner in Chicago for years. Universal Studios, Universal, recording yeah. studios. And uh, he sort of mysteriously disappeared and left the business hanging there. And it was sort of a scandal in in chicago that murray mm. allen had just disappeared and and universal studios which was the go-to studio for all the uh composers in town jingles and movies um anyway he was gone the studio collapsed uh and suddenly he appeared as head of audio at ea <laughs> <laughs> wow so i think in like 98 i was probably at a, some conference at apple i think tommy tallarico was there myself marie allen and the the apple had been taken over the audio department at apple was former sinclair guys do you remember the sinclair ever do you emily do you know about the sinclair uh, 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 oh like the keyboard that yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, you had, you, you plopped down half a million dollars to have a Sinclair system in your studio. You had to be unbelievably successful to have one of those. We didn't have one. But anyway, <laughs> all that, it, it, it disappeared along with the Fairlight, mm -hmm. you know, rest in peace. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, the technicians all went over to Apple. And so they were trying to show us what was going on with Apple. And we were like, yeah, Apple, are you going to get serious about games? Because we don't believe you are. It was like very hard yeah. uh, to know what was going to happen. But then Microsoft called and had flew a bunch of us out. And we had this thing Kevin Bacchus was running. And it was all about direct, direct sound, which was part of DirectX, which was for the computer. And it was part of the operating system. And it was a very complex and would that was only direct music. It would direct music too. Direct music, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so they tried to convince us that we should start doing direct music, and I just looked at that and like nothing about direct music made sense to me. I didn't like the way it worked. I didn't like how handcuffed I would be, and I didn't like the fact that I wouldn't be able to use any part of that on any Apple platforms. And at Bungie, Bungie was big on Apple and PC at the time. People forget that, but it was it was cross-platform. But we couldn't, I couldn't just walk away from the Apple fans. So I remember asking Kevin, you know, why is this, why isn't this a I mean, I'd be interested in it maybe if it was a separate um piece of software that that could port over to whatever platform I'm on. And he goes, Well, we need it to be part of the operating system. I'm like, why would you want something this specific to be part of your operating system? And he goes, because, you know, Microsoft sells operating systems. And right. I'm like, yeah. oh, <laughs> it's about selling something. Okay, got it. Yeah. And, and it was funny because I thought, well, I'm, you know, like Brian said, at that point, uh, Microsoft wasn't necessarily a lot of fun. 
but it, it within a year suddenly we heard about I think it was it was it 99 maybe when you guys announced the Xbox project um it was a the official announcement I think was at GDC because Bill Gates gave the keynote at GDC, uh, GDC that year when it was in San Jose yeah I was there that probably was 99 I think it was 99, 99. or 2000 I forget which but I, I remember it, it might have been 2000 no cuz I cuz I remember I it must have been the year before because um, I remember giving a talk on Xbox Audio at GDC 2000. Oh, excellent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I remember coming home and saying, I've seen the future. <laughs> this is what we're going to be doing. <laughs> it's going to be like PlayStation 2 is going to be amazing. Xbox is going to blow the, the socks off everybody. Um, and I went to Bungie at the time. It, I was not not an employee of Bungie. I, I wasn't part of Bungie. I was their go-to audio director freelancer, right? I mean, my company was, you know, worked for Bungie. Um, but I remember going to them saying, guys, we can't, you know, we have to get on the the Xbox thing. We have to figure out a way to get on that. And thankfully, I mean, they all agreed, like, well, we'll make this, we'll finish making this Halo thing, which we had, <laughs> you know, we had shown to the world in 1999. And it was going to be PC and Mac only. That's, that was the platforms, but eventually we'll port it to PlayStation and Xbox. So the plan was to port the Halo to those platforms, and uh, I'm like, well, that'll be cool, you know that that'll be fun. Um, and then we got a call <laughs> in 2000. <laughs> so um, yeah, because yeah, that was, was not the plan, right? It was not the plan it wasn't to have the Halo plan. ship with Xbox right away, right? Exactly. The original yeah. plan was PC and Mac, and we went to uh, E3 2000, and we had a 10-minute-long uh, canned demo. And then also following up the canned demo was um, live gameplay, uh, showing the engine and showing how the thing worked. But I, I'm going to take credit for this. I said, guys, like, and the reason I'll take credit for it, because, and Brian could understand why this is, um the the idea of surround sound and a theater and a big screen those kinds of things just weren't happening in the game business in 2000 and i said look if we could like have a if we could show this in surround sound on a big screen in a dark room and so you know this will blow everybody away at e3 cuz it's just it's going to be the kind of presentation that people just aren't used to so I convinced them to like build a not soundproof, but a but a dark tent kind of enclosure with a giant screen in front. And then I had to like figure out a way to, okay, how do you do surround sound on a DVD? Like what technically is involved on that? And and it was up as Brian can attest in 2000, it was a total panic. The the ability to um you know, a small little studio making that kind of technology work uh, was was very hard. But that's the that presentation of the E3 2000 demo was the thing that we showed it uh, on the morning that E3 started to some VIPs. We, I just heard that like the first show was not going to be for the fans, was not going to be for the general public. It was going to be a closed room uh, VIP showing. And I'm like, oh, cool. VIPs, what does that mean? <laughs> and uh, well, what that meant was 
probably Ed Freeze and mm-hmm. um and who's Ed Freeze? Ed Freeze was head of uh Microsoft Game Studios and was absolutely at the time I didn't know this but he was absolutely looking for buying studios, buying uh, IP. He he was in dire need of getting as much product game content to be on the launch of xbox for a year right. later yeah because and yeah. so he was there probably Stuart Mulder was there i don't know who else and so after we showed that and the vips left alex seropian who at the time was co-owner of bungie came out to me he goes marty i i don't know what to tell you but microsoft just offered to buy our company and and we're gonna do it <laughs> and i'm like what <laughs> what and he oh, says you yeah, had just joined as an employee right yeah, I had just ten days prior joined Bungie because the the uh, the the amount of time I was spending on just the Bungie projects at the time I had two Oni and Halo, and I was spending so much time on that that I my commercial business was was struggling. So I told my partner Mike, I said, "You you keep running the commercial side. I'm going to go work full time for Bungie because we couldn't even figure out a way to bid." on what we were doing for Halo because the rules kept changing. And I'm and they said, well, you said it would only cost this much. And I'm like, yeah, you just doubled the amount of work like yesterday. So finally they said, well, why don't you just become an employee? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so 10 days after I had joined Bungie and had not even moved because their studio was across the street from ours. And I did all my, I stayed at my studio doing all my work. That's when we showed the thing at, at E3 and suddenly Bungie was no longer. So suddenly I was being bought by Microsoft. Wow. And I had to make the decision, should I should I move to Redmond, Washington, become a Microsoft employee, ship this thing, or should I just say, well, good luck, guys, I quit. Um, and that was only a slightly easier decision because the studio that we had built, the one that Brian had visited, had burned down, believe it or not, in 99. Oh, so we were in this new studio that I wasn't really happy with, with a new business arrangement that I wasn't super happy with. So I thought, okay, I'll move to Redmond. I'll sh- ship this launch title on this cool platform called the Xbox. And then a year later, I'll move back to Chicago and <laughs> do commercials again. My plan was, okay, yeah, I'll spend five years in Seattle at Microsoft. And then I'll go back to Chicago and go back to doing uh, you know, console games. and. That was 25 years ago now. (laughs) (laughs) Funny how that happens. But you're not in Washington anymore. You don't live up there, do you, Brian? I I don't live in Washington, no. No, I know you don't, Marty, but Yes, I'm semi-retired, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm still in Washington State. Oh, you are in Washington State. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah, I moved here again for Microsoft and just never moved. I left Microsoft a long time ago, but but stayed out here just for a bit. Because it's it's pretty nice out here. Mm Mm-hmm. Like the, that's funny about the surround because I don't. You, you're probably aware of how close surround sound came to not happening on the Xbox, Marty. If I'm sure. Well, now we're getting in the nitty gritty where, like, <laughs> suddenly I'm in one building. We we, we the Xbox uh, crew, at, at, I believe, all of everybody was at the Millennium Millennium D, and you were Millennium yeah. E, right? Yeah, we were Millennium E. So two, but yeah. we were a building apart from each other. So all the people working on Xbox were in one building. We and Bungie 
had its own little wing of this other building with our own locks on the doors. And we wouldn't let anybody in yeah. from Microsoft. That's right. <laughs> um, and that's an absolutely true story. We we had yeah. we were keyed and we wouldn't let even Bill Gates have a key to our place. <laughs> and Balmer visited, Bill Gates visited. Um, even when even when Ed Freeze would visit, he would have to get permission to come in. Get buzzed we in. Not yeah. let them have keys. <laughs> we just didn't want Microsoft because we had seen what Microsoft had done to FASA, which was another uh, Chicago game company. And when they bought FASA a year, at least a year before they bought Bungie, they brought the f- entire studio out. These are the Mech Warrior guys at Jordan Wiseman's company, and they bought them. And then they they put all the programmers in the pro- programming division, and they didn't know what exactly to do with artists, so they sort of scattered them around. And FASA just disappeared inside of Microsoft. And we saw that and we're like, no, if you're going to buy Bungie, you have to let us be Bungie, self-contained, no interference from the outside. And I have to give Ed Freeze just huge amounts of credit because I don't know why he trusted that that was the right way to go, but he did. And we became really close with Ed. He was always like super on our side. He he felt like another creative you know, product person rather than a business marketing person. Um, so Ed was was great, and he he let us do what we needed to do, uh, even though we, you know, that came actually, close it, to failure several times. <laughs> that actually was kind of the philosophy that Microsoft had with the with Millennium D as well. With the, right? cool with, when when Marty and I talk about Millennium, literally these were buildings that were you know a mile and a half away from the next closest Microsoft building. Yeah, we wow. were off campus. We were not next to Windows or Microsoft or, okay. or Office. Or, and we were given carte blanche to basically tell, because when Xbox was announced, um, and it was, interesting when it was, in that, from the day it was greenlit to ship was 18 months. Oh, my gosh. Um, it was just insanely fast. And so once it was announced publicly that Microsoft was doing this game console thing, it felt like every department at Microsoft was trying to contact Xbox. We literally had the SQL Server people, the database people, talk about how important it was to have SQL Server on the Xbox. <laughs> um, but the, the Windows people, the Explorer people, it's like, oh, it's got to be a web browser. And they were really good. They, you know, Bill and Steve basically said, you have permission to just give the hand to anybody at Microsoft who has, isn't directly related to games. And they're like, you can tell them, come talk to us in three or four years. We have a game console to launch. I don't know when. Kind of similar. Yeah, I don't know when that edict came down from Bill and Steve, but I know that Ed talks about the St. Valentine's Day massacre where the Xbox people went to Bill and Steve, but it was, uh, you know, Bill Gates' office, conference room, whatever, and said, "Um, we're not going to put Windows on the Xbox. Yep. And and uh, Bill Steve, lost it, apparently. Yeah, really? He could not believe, like, the premier thing. Of course Windows is going to be on the Xbox. <laughs> and it was like, it can't be. We're, it's not going to be there. Um, and they, at some point at the end of that meeting, it was on Valentine's Day, and none of the guys got to go out with their wives for Valentine's Day. <laughs> uh, they stayed late into the night um, being yelled at. But for some reason, at the very end of that meeting, Bill said, okay, I got it. You could do this. We'll stay out of your hair. But 
you're on the hook now. And and right. they they came out, and I'm sure that's when you know you you also heard that. I mean, I didn't know about it at the time, but you know, we were. I don't remember where if we had been bought yet or not, but it all happened very quickly. If that yeah. happened in 18 months, we were purchased. E3 2000 was in what like May maybe May of of 2000. Okay, that's right about the time the uh, yeah that it was officially greenlit because uh, yeah the ship date was November fifteenth two thousand one yeah and then so so here we are May in two thousand and we're purchased by Microsoft we were flown out to Microsoft to interview with them to see if they would offer us each one of us individuals offer us positions I think that was in June and we had like a weekend to be interviewed to be given an offer letter and look for a house. Jeez. (laughs) And so my wife and I think my daughters, we the four of us all came out and you know, in the cracks, we were like looking for houses. And at one point I just was so overwhelmed with everything. I just said to my wife and my oldest daughter, look, whatever you find, go go search in Redmond, find something, and I'll be happy with it. So they're the ones who found the house we ended up living in. (laughs) And then, you know, uh we we had moved, we moved out in July. I, I moved out in July, stayed in temporary like apartment mm-hmm. housing yep. until my yep. family moved out yep. in September or something like that. So it was uh it was and when you think about that, that's we had a year then from that moment, you know, to set up a studio. You know, I had to build an, an audio studio and make Halo and ship Halo on the Xbox. It was insane. Right. Right. And we had to say, what should go in this Xbox thing? Let's figure (laughs) out what the processor should be. What should it do? Hey, um, because I I had actually had a conversation when I was still on Windows with a guy at Dolby about, um, because at the time, one of the goals was, hey, how can we get Windows into the living room? And so I was talking with somebody at Dolby about Dolby Digital. And they're like, oh, Dolby Digital won't work for games. The latency is too long. Because it was like two or three hundred milliseconds of latency, and it's not designed for that. So this was a GDC '98, and literally at a Hilton restaurant, um, we sort of napkin sketched out something. He said, "You know, I think we could actually make this work." Wow! But that was going to be for Windows. It went on hiatus again, but then when Xbox happened again, we kind of picked that up again. It's like, yeah, let's continue our discussions about can we do Dolby Digital in real time and make it work for games? And oh, what are we going to do it on? And so we we was as Marty was trying to figure out how do we ship Halo in you know 12, 13 months, we were trying to figure out how do we build this thing, what sound ship should be in it. And we we landed on a sound ship that um had been created by NVIDIA, which was pretty beefy. It was based upon some something they thought we were gonna do on Windows, because we had told them we're looking at this direction for Windows, and we never actually really did that in Windows. But so NVIDIA had gone ahead and made this chip anyway. Uh, it's called the MCP or the MCP X is the Xbox version. And it was essentially Pro Tools and Sample Cell on a chip. So it was like a wow. Pro Tool system. It had a dedicated DSP. It had another dedicated synthesizer block that had built in HRTF before HRTF was a big thing. Wow. Um, we used it at uh, 256 voices, which it, the goal was how can we blow away the PlayStation 2? audio chip, which was basically just two PlayStation 1 audio chips fused together. <laughs> so the original MCPX had just the synthesizer and an audio effects DSP. 
And then as we were trying to figure out, can we make this Dolby thing work? Um, well, we're going to need a third DSP on this chip. And again, literally, it's the same chip that was in Pro Tools. It's called the Motorola 56000 DSP. And tech, you know, technologically, we thought we could make it happen. We prototyped it up, uh, looked at what the costs were, and um, eventually uh, got it to work. But it uh, it came real close. It, um, trying to get the business deal between Microsoft and Dolby. So Microsoft is a company that at the time, if you wanted to make a Windows machine, you had to license Microsoft. So they'd be like, here's our contract. You don't like it? Oh, you don't have to go make Windows machines. Dolby was a company. It's like, hey, if you want to make a DVD player, you have to license Dolby. You have no choice. Here's our contract. Take it or leave it. And so now we had to get Dolby and Microsoft to kind of figure out how can we do a contract. And it literally came down to, um, I remember, because I was in Barry Spector's office. This was right near when pre-production prototypes were going to run off the factory line. Uh, we got a call from the general manager who was in Mexico at the factory. And he was like, Barry, Brian, in 12 hours, we start making the molds, the plastic molds for the Xbox. We have two molds cast. One of them has the Dolby logo. One of them doesn't. And we need to know by tomorrow morning which ones to start making. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of that. That's how close Marty it came to not making it into the Xbox. All right, so I got to tell, I got to insert my my view of this whole thing. So now go back a few months, right? Uh, I'm making the decision: should I go to Redmond? Should I uproot my family? Should I change everything and move and become part of the game industry and live in in Washington? Uh, and work for Microsoft, which was not an easy decision for me. But Brian and all of the guys over at Xbox, when they would go on stage uh, at GDC or E3, they would say, yes, Xbox with real-time surround sound from Dolby. Which is the <laughs> first like, time that ever happened. That did not happen in video games until the Xbox. Yeah, and I'm like, I cannot miss this. Like, this is what I've been waiting for. Yeah. To be able to do surround sound um, out of the box, being decoded in real time. I didn't even think that was possible. Like, be, I mean, if you think about it, like, surround sound, like when we did at E3 2000, we made a surround sound DVD. I sat there and watched this 10-minute DVD get burned. It took like an hour for that thing to, <laughs> for the data and all the Dolby digital files, the whole thing. It was a, a really long process. And I'm like, you can't just input audio and have it come out in real time with no latency in surround sound. That doesn't work. No, nobody's doing that. But I, I would listen to guys like Brian say, <laughs> Marty, yes, it's going to have real time Dolby digital surround sound. And I'm like, okay, I'm coming. So um, deep into our production, um, we designed everything to to work with Dolby Digital surround sound. We had nothing. I had a surround sound studio, but that, that my Pro Tools was set up to to author everything, so I could do surround sound. I could listen to things in surround, and I could hear how cool it was. And then I got a call from Brian late in this whole thing. No, it wasn't Brian. It was one of my my engineers, the chief of engineering at Bungie. 
Michael Evans came and said, hey, um, it doesn't look like they're going to be able to do surround sound. So we're going to have to we're going to have to re- revamp the engine. So we're, we're not going to be supporting the surround sound thing. And I'm like, no, you can't do this. <laughs> I said, don't make that decision, Michael. I, we're going to ship in surround sound. I went over to Brian's office. I don't know if Brian remembers exactly what this was, because I'm sure you had your own hell you were going through. But I'm like, <laughs> for the love of God, Brian, get the Dolby thing in there. It's like, <laughs> I got to have surround sound. It's like, don't make me go back and and rip this whole thing out. I don't know what at what stage you guys were in the negotiation, but um, it was very, very close. It, it, it was, I, I spent probably more time on the, with the biz dev guys than with the technical people on the Dolby oh. thing. It literally was, um, again, you know, neither of the companies ever changed their contracts. And there, I, I obviously can't talk about some of the details about what actually fi- kind of finally made it go. But um, there's some things I can point out. Um, you know, we talked about, Marty talked about earlier about the Windows brand and everything. I ask anybody who is a, a history buff to go go look at their original Xbox and try to find the Microsoft logo. Really? And it's there, but it's a black logo on a black console. <laughs> <laughs> and if you look for the Dolby logo on the Xbox, you will also see it is a black logo on a black console. And... <laughs> I, Come on, statute of limitations is out. That's, Go, that's right. Yeah, that's no. um, <laughs> Let's just say, I think somebody might have a hard time finding another product that has a Dolby logo that's the same color as the product. Gotcha. In other words, yeah, probably. So, yeah. I, these are things you can find out for yourself. You can go look at Dolby <laughs> products. You can look at the Xbox. Um, well, but yeah, and, no, black Emily, on black as a logo is not something marketing people tend to really like so much. But right. that's what the Microsoft brand was on Xbox. That's yeah. what the Dolby brand was on Xbox. One of the other funny things to me was people would come to me when I was preaching, we've got a ship in the surround, and they would say, Marty, how many you know, teenagers are going to be sitting in a home that has a home theater system. And I was like, I don't care if it's just one. We are doing this because it's <laughs> like we will be establishing a a quality bar. Mm-hmm. And I remember after Halo came out, I would, I would, I think we won some some awards and I would go on stage and I would accept the award, but I would say, if you haven't played Halo in surround sound, you haven't played Halo. I'd say that over and over yep, again. I remember and that. And the Dolby people started to fall in love with me. And I didn't realize yeah. <laughs> this, but Xbox actually sold more home theaters than just about any other hardware product. Um, people, because Xbox had the ability to do real-time surround, uh, people started setting their home theaters up uh, to support that. And I... Dolby, the people at Dolby have told me that they probably sold more home theater systems uh, because of the Xbox than than any other DVD product or anything oh. else. It, it, maybe it was like you know just a confluence of other things all happening, but it was yeah. it was definitely driven by Xbox was one of the drivers, and uh, yeah, I think it, everybody's happy with the way it turned out. But boy, it was yeah, get get you know, so I mean, if you think you know, and the, the way you guys did it was obviously amazing but you know because I, I remember when i was at q sound we were look, trying to look for movies that showed off surround sound really well for dolby digital for for various reasons 
And we had to like search for these little snippets of movies that showed that actually had things in the rear speakers that were really impactful. But for games, it's like, well, yeah, there's a guy behind you. He'll sound from behind you. And so in a lot of ways, games make a lot more creative use, a lot more impactful use of surround sound technology, even today. Well, I, I mean, I, I've, media does. Yeah. I've talked about this. I mean, especially when, when you start thinking about, um, and we're not going to get into VR in this talk, but <laughs> games, you know, you have a flat screen in front of you and you're watching a movie. You're in a theater and you're watching a movie on a flat screen in front of you. If you hear something behind you, you think it's some lady who dropped her purse. I mean, I've been in theaters with surround sound, and I'm like, I turn around because I think that something just happened behind me. It it doesn't feel right to me. I mean, you have to sort of get used to it in movies and on your TV. Like, I'm watching TV, and then something happens behind me on the couch. I'm like, what, what was, oh, that's, yeah, that's the movie. It doesn't feel as organic, but if you're in a game, the whole illusion of a game is to immerse a person in a environment that is a 3D environment that you when you turn around when you turn your character around you expect all the audio to turn with you and it my my bis, biggest example in Halo was somebody over here shoots a rocket launcher and the rocket goes here and then it hits the cliff behind you and explodes and all the gravel falls behind you as soon as that's happening, you have the visual, you know you can turn, you can look at the explosion. You don't think something weird is happening in your room. You expect that to be what you hear, what you experience. So to me, the visceral reason why games are so much better at surround sound is because of the what a game is designed to create. The illusion that it's trying to create is a 3D environment that you are you are physically traversing. I realized that kind of early. I thought this is the perfect place to play with surround sound. Like, like we have to be able to do this. It's got to be in there. And uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm so happy that it came out. Uh, whatever Brian had to do behind the scenes, whatever, whatever babies he had to sell. I'm sorry, but that's okay. <laughs> no, but not not too many babies. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was mostly a matter of just you know trying to make sure is it going to work. I literally went to back you know to my some old Sega Genesis games and PlayStation games, and I would hook the audio through up up through a digital delay and just keep upping the milliseconds of delay of latency coming out of my PlayStation or my Sega Genesis. Unfortunately, I hate to admit it, that's about as scientific as an experiment as we did. <laughs> um, but if we had had Amazing. time, we would have had 30 people in and done a focus group. And But no, it was like, yeah, okay, let me just keep up on the delay. Well, and what how, we found big was out, your, how big was your audio team at, on the Xbox side? It was small. Um, yeah. There was one core uh, sort of DSP programmer who's friggin' brilliant. Um, a core direct sound programmer, a couple of testers, uh, myself. So it was pretty lean. Um, there was evangelism, Scott Selfon, Chanel Summers. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it was pretty lean. And uh, and we were trying to work with the Dolby engineers and NVIDIA for it, right? We had to get NVIDIA to put the, the that extra DSP on once we sort of, and we said this before the contracts were signed, but um, we said, yeah, NVIDIA, we're going to do this surround thing. And it was in all the marketing materials and whatnot. And then we had to get the code from Dolby, but it had to be adjusted for our chip. And so our code programmer had to work on it, which meant 
a whole nother set of legal hassles with getting our, letting our engineers talk to their engineers, which neither company likes. So I, I do remember there was, I think it was May before Xbox, before launch date. Yeah. That we gave um, kind of Bill came in and had a tour of Xbox and we had a prototype of the surround sound actually working except it was intermittent. So we had a helicopter. We had a, a little demo where you could um, fly the helicopter just around using the joystick and the joy pad, which he did later say that he thought was one of the coolest things he saw that day. Cause <laughs> he knew we were really close to getting it working, but it was getting the latency down. I mean, Dolby ended up having a patent on the idea they came up with to get to do Dolby digital in real time. Real time. Um, yeah, Steve Vernon uh, over at Dolby and a bunch of other people. You, you can look up the patent. Yeah. Um, and that was the thing. That was the little aha moment that Dolby had. It's like, oh, well, it wasn't designed to be done in real time. But if we did this weird thing, we could kind of make it work. And so that's what we ended up getting. Well, it's funny because I remember at some point, well, I mean, talking about May, I think we, uh May before the launch of Xbox. So yeah, that was the first a, time that was the first time we actually had a hardware device that was an actual kind of Xbox prototype. But I think all the uh um Halo demoed at E3 in 2001. So this is a matter of months before the launch of the Xbox. But the demo machines that we were demoing on didn't have the full chipset yet, including Correct. I don't think Dolby Digital was in no, there. No, no, not not at all. And so I remember thinking, like, well, you know, I don't care about this demo because it's it's going to run at half speed. It doesn't have the full chipset. I'm sure the marketing people will explain that. <laughs> no, <laughs> they didn't. So Bungie, uh, you know, Halo didn't show well, but none of us cared because we were all heads down trying to work on the real thing. Right. Um, and, you know, but we realized later that Microsoft was very worried that, you know, the press kind of said, hey, Halo doesn't look like much, doesn't sound like much. You know, maybe this isn't that big a deal. And they were very worried about it. And, and we were like, why are you worried about it? It was at a, you had half the chips missing. We, we're, right. we're not designed to show. You shouldn't have even showed Halo at E3. Uh, that's the kind of attitude I had, of course. Yeah, um, yeah the, the way that the... Prototype. So the way we had the developers develop games, because there literally was no Xbox hardware until like literally five or six months before ship. Yeah. Amazing. And so uh, there was a team that was set up and they did a tremendously great job. Like, let's configure these Windows PCs <laughs> in certain ways, write these rules to tell the developers you can do this, but don't do that. And if you follow these rules, when we get real Xboxes, it should be fairly straightforward to take your code that runs on Windows here and now get it running on Xbox. And the team that did that did that really well. And that's probably what the thing you were using to demo it was, was this Windows-based demo that uh, eventually had to kind of get ported over. Yeah. And when so when we finally got the boxes, and I don't remember exactly what month that was, it might have been May or June of that year. Um, we finally got the box with the chips. It was still a prototype box. I mean, it was still a dev kit, right? But yeah, it. it I remember when we finally had the optical cable. Which yes, is, I don't remember. Okay, the, yeah. Okay, so the optical cable, of course, is the thing that comes out of the back of the box and has six discrete channels coming out. And I was so excited. It's like this is it. We've got it. 
And so we had to figure out how do we get that six discrete channels of coming out of the optical cable, and I need to capture the audio into Pro Tools so that I have a six-channel capture so I can see really what are we outputting. Like I, I didn't really trust what I was hearing, I, but I could trust what I was seeing and hearing. And so once we, once we got that, we started figuring out, you know, what was going on in the code and with the hardware and where things were being suppressed or constrained. But I remember at some point, I, I know what you're going to say. I think I know what you're going to say. What? 6dB? <laughs> oh no, I'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. Now, before the 6dB <laughs> thing, I remember at some point. It might have been around this 60B thing, which Emily is probably like, what are you talking about? I'll talk about it in a minute. <laughs> but um, I, I revealed to Brian, hey, yeah, you know, I'm looking at the waveforms and this, this, this. And Brian's like, how are you seeing the waveforms? <laughs> I don't know if you remember <laughs> this. He's like, he, I said, I'm capturing from the optical cable the actual output so I can see all six channels. And he's like, yeah, can we come over and see that? Because we don't have a system that does that. Do you remember that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's how you found the 6dB, too. It was the same. And that's same how thing. I found out. So what was happening was there was a, a there was in the code a suppression, and I think hardware. I forget how it was. There were two 6dB, 6dB suppressions where whatever signal I was outputting would go down by 6dB across the board, and then again, 6dB. So it was like 12dB softer than what I was doing. That's substantial, yeah. It is substantial. And I, I, I use that. I'm like, Brian, I'm looking at the waveforms. This is not what we're, I'm losing 12 dB. What is going on? And you're, and I forget now, you should explain what your, what the explanation so, was. There were, there were two different things going on there. Yeah. One was we were telling you something was zero dB when it was really minus six. <laughs> and that was, <laughs> I discovered it. And, and you can't and that, do that to my and, ears, pal. And, and, and that was deliberate <laughs> because one of the problems was is that um, one of the problems we're trying to solve is that when people are not used to authoring on a chip that has 256 voices, if you just play things, you're going to start clipping and clipping and clipping. And so we're like, okay, let's force a little bit of headroom into the system. <laughs> well, we won't tell them. We'll just make a little softer so they have some headroom built in. Amazing. And then the other 60B was a genuine bug that Marty found that uh, oh. like we just didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> so 60B of it was by design. 60B was like, oh, oops. <laughs> But yeah, it, it took it took Halo to to find, um, you know, and and somebody with the the sort of detail orientation yeah. of Marty's team to kind of figure this out. Yeah, and once once I found that, I was like, oh, two good things happened. One good thing was I we found the bug and we found that. This, and I remember saying to Brian, I'm like, this is going to cause a problem for all the games because suddenly you're going to hear this beautiful, and we'll talk about Brian's startup sound, but the classic startup sound for the Xbox was gorgeous. And used like, you know, two kilobytes or something. I'm exaggerating. But I mean, you 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 did it because it had no software. It was just coming straight off the chip. But it was... It was, you know, maximum gain. It was like no, zero. It was a maximum gain. Oh, that's oh okay. A, I, I fought <laughs> tooth and nail with the marketing people over this. Well, I think the first time I heard it, it was, and I captured it, and I was like, what is this? And then my game was like this. And I'm like, <laughs> if you guys do that, and I think you argued the same way. Oh, I mean, yeah. you agreed. Like, 
we can't have the startup sound be the loudest thing people ever hear. Because, because then people will calibrate the TV their TVs up. They'll turn their TVs down. Yeah. And then every it sounds wimpy. Yeah. yeah. The original boot sound um, peaked out at minus 18. And the marketing folks hated it. They're like, the PlayStation is so much louder. That's what we want. Um, they, well, they want it to be just as loud. And so I, I wow. compromised. And the, the boot sound actually is about minus 12. It okay. peaks out. Well, see, I was I was looking at you. You my, listened to like the earliest prototype. Where yes, but we but once we even got to that point, I remember looking at the, you know, the wave file of the boot sound, and then the loudest explosion, all the dialogue, everything that I could possibly. I used all two hundred fifty six channels to test to see <laughs> how far I could go, and we were just barely equal. And I was like, this, this is going to be a problem. And I think what I did was I went to my programmers. And I said, what is the code that's suppressing, that's taking the 6dB down? And they're like, well, it's this thing. We're not supposed to touch it. And <laughs> I think we touched it. <laughs> I think we, Halo. We, we, we did let you go to plus six. Okay. So we, right. It's just that zero was actually minus six. And if you said plus six, that brought you up to zero. Yeah. So, so I think, believe it or not, because, because we were such detail people and I was like very much into this game needs to sound powerful. It has to sound powerful. It should. It can't be less power than the boot sound, right? Right. Um, I think we probably ended up having the loudest game on the Xbox for all the launch titles, which I don't know how much of a, a difference that makes, but like I, you know, we were in there so we could understand exactly what was happening. And we wanted to be the loudest, so I think we were. Plus, we also, I made a mistake with the bass redirect. I don't know if you know this, Brian. Have I ever told you this? What did you do? <laughs> <laughs> In my surround sound studio, you know, I had the the woofer or the yep. the, the LFE, which is LFE, the low frequency yes. effects, which yep. is a specific channel that you pipe low frequency effects to. But in most home stereo systems, the LFE also acts as a crossover. Yeah bass woofer but the way i had my recording studio set up i was only hearing what we were shipping to the lfe and i had kind of smaller surround sound speakers so i'm like this is not bassy enough what's going on so we we're like we're going to take everything as a separate coded thing we're going to take the entire mix of whatever's happening oh i did yeah <laughs> and actually ship it you know actually send it to the LFE. So in my studio, I'm like, ah, there's the bass I'm looking for. Little did I know, because I didn't do the right research, that all home systems do that automatically anyway. Yes, so yeah. then when I would test, and this is, this is one of those weird things, I would test Halo at my home theater with commercial stuff. And it sounded just the way it sounded in my studio, and I thought it was great. And then one day I looked and I saw that there were two cables coming out of the back of the system that fed my speakers and two cables went to the LFE. And I'm like, oh, I, I should have two cables going there for some reason, my particular oh. <laughs> system. So what I thought was the right amount of bass was actually half the bass that I was actually shipping to the rest of the world. When I plugged that other cable in, I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> There's way too much bass in this game. Yeah. So Halo 1 probably is the has double the bass 
response of any game out Double there. the base, twice the fun. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It worked. What can I say? Well, it, it, it actually reminded me of an interesting thing because um, digital surround sound in a video game, interactive, was a brand new thing in Xbox. It, right. it didn't exist in the, the gaming space before. Yeah. And we actually spent a lot of time Dolby gave a lot. Right? So we would have these conventions called X-Fests, which are Xbox developer conferences. We bring people in. We did them in London. We do them in Japan. We you know, do them in Redmond and in California. And we would spend a lot of time with developers, with audio directors, with composers, with sound designers saying, Xbox has digital surround sound. Here's what it means. Here's the difference between LFE and subwoofer. And Here's I missed that the session. Well, <laughs> you, you and um, there's a when I, I think it was the Lion King first came out, the mixing engineers didn't understand uh, how LFE works on DVD. And there's this scene in Lion King where there's like a stampede of elements or something like that. And they put, they're like, oh, this is cool. We'll put the stampede sound only in the LFE. Like, oh. The sixth channel is the LFE channel. It just goes to the subwoofer. But what they didn't realize, because Dolby Digital was very new back in 1995, is that according to Dolby spec, when you mix a six-channel Dolby Digital surround sound down to stereo, you throw away the LFE. Right. So what happened is for this version, um, and they fixed it pretty quickly, but for this original version of Lion King, I'm pretty sure it was Lion King, during this one part of the scene, there's no sound because the only sound is the stampeding elephants in the subwoofer <laughs> in the LFE, which oh, on a stereo mix down gets thrown away. So there was a lot mm. of educa- educating of developers. And again, Dolby was awesome partner to work with. They, uh, you know, would fly people in um, and uh, just say, here's what it is. Here's how you should use it. Here's the APIs, how to use it. Here's the tools, how to use it. Here's what your end users can expect. So it was... It was, it was a pretty big deal. So, Boy, we spent a lot well, of time on Dolby Digital. <laughs> well, it's okay because that was what was unique. I was just going to say by Halo 2 times, I had learned my lesson. Not only that, but we decided that there was no – we wanted to make sure that everyone who had a home system, because so many people were setting up their systems wrong. I, what I wish was that if you set your system up wrong, you would get no sound. Yeah. But instead, you just got bad sound, and you didn't know that you set your system up wrong. And I remember saying, can't we just have it so like if you got the wrong cable plugged in or you you didn't also do a software switch, you know, on the on in the side of the software, if those two things weren't compatible, that the sound would just not work. And there was just there was no way to do that. But um so we included this thing called the Dolby Digital Surround Sound Test. And yeah. uh with with a hunter and a grunt channel and, over there. Channel <laughs> yeah, exactly. over there. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, didn't it was. You find it was something be, like. What'd you say? Theater, didn't you find some theater or something that was? Yeah, yeah. Something? Oh no, this was not a small thing. Uh, so we did this. Welcome to the DVD surround yeah. sound test. You know, and <laughs> it was funny because the little guy would say, "Speaker on that side, speaker on that side," and, and of he course, literally, words, he literally would point, just like Marty. Point to which side it point. needed to be, yeah. and if if it didn't work, you knew it right away. Yeah, and then he would say, "Center speaker." Uh, and it would be in the center only. And then and then the hunter, this big guy, would come out and just do this huge, basically a belch. <laughs> and if the LFE wasn't working right, it would be silent, like Brian's saying. Like, yeah. or if you were 
you thought you were in surround, but instead you were in stereo, you would get silence. So you would know that that it wasn't working. We thought that was funny. The fans kind of loved it. You can still find it online today. It, it actually works great if you have the original. If it's, It was on the DVD, so you could test. You know, you had all these color tests, right, or lighting tests. Yeah. Make sure your TV's right. But I wanted to make sure we had something so people knew their speakers were set up right. Mm-hmm. So for Halo 2, I think there was a – we did a – one of those Microsoft events at a, at a theater in Los Angeles during E3, probably 2003 or something. And it, of course, it was now it was playing off the Xbox, and we were in the man's Chinese theater. I mean, it was a big deal. It was the Chinese theater, which is one of the famous theaters in, in L.A. And I'm sitting there watching the dress rehearsal, and, you know, this this game is being shown and this other game is being shown and all these games are shown and then up comes halo and i'm like wait that's not right the speakers are wrong the like what was supposed to be happening here was over here and just and you know it was speakers were switched left and right speakers left and no it was both the the left and right fronts and the left and right rears (laughs) were were absolutely not right for the (laughs) audience orientation amazing and I went up to the engineers and I said, guys, this, you, you guys, this isn't right. There's something, I thought it was at the board. I thought they had something mixed up at the board. And they're like, no, you know, who are you? This is Man's Chinese Theater. We've, we've shown movies here. This is, this is the way this is set up. And I said, look, can we just put this other DVD, this test? Welcome to the DVD round <laughs> test. Real? And so the little grunt comes out and goes, speaker on that side. And you hear it over here speaker on that side and you heard it over here and they these guys were like what yeah. and they rewired this the they they fixed it incredible but so i mean it really i i that, that was one of the high points of my little engine <laughs> you know i'm not an end sound engineer but uh, you know i play one on tv i <laughs> i just love the fact that they um they were so confident that that i was yeah. wrong but it's one of those things it's easy to do if you're you know, if you're behind the stage and you think left, right, and you're you forget that it's the audience perspective you have to worry about. So, um, yeah, we we changed the man's Chinese theater because of that demo. So it was good. It's amazing, <laughs> Marty. When you you were talking about the demo at E3 in, I think you said May of of two thousand two thousand yeah two thousand or. or which which E three demo? There was the before we were bought by Microsoft, and then there was the one the year later in two thousand. The year later, yeah. where okay, you're chaining computers together or whatever to run your demo. Right. However, it is how much was how much of the music was done? Was the soundtrack done? Like how? No. Yeah, I mean, how could it have been? Right? Like how? Right. So talk about that because that well, seems crunchy. Yeah, this is. Uh, Writing and producing music is not a huge, for me personally, it, it's it's not the most difficult thing. There were so many technical things that I, I always felt was more important. So that always kind of drove the designers and, and producers kind of crazy uh, inside of Bungie because like, where's the music? Where's the music? And I'm like, where's the game? Like, I'm not writing music till I know what the game is, until I know yeah. what this level does, until I know how we're transitioning from one thing to another. And, you know, I I would say almost my entire time working uh, in the game industry, that was always a point of of contention because 
designers and producers, they want everything done early and they feel better. And I'm like, look, I'm not here to make you feel better. I'm <laughs> I'm here to make the game super immersive and fun for the fans. And the only way I can do that on the music side is to know exactly what I'm writing and implementing music for. And if the game isn't ready, it, I always would describe it like this. We're making this really great multi-layered cake. And until the cake is baked completely, you can't frost it. Now, I will pre-make some frostings, <laughs> but I'm not going to, I can't frost the cake when it hasn't been cooked yet. And of course, that's the kind of metaphor that just goes over most technical people's heads. Um, they just didn't understand it. But I, I thought it was like super clear. Like, and you know, maybe music is more than frosting, but it's it's really it's the kind of thing that really brings the whole thing together after it's solid, right? So yeah, uh, that summer I, I was <laughs> it was like, oh, I've I better start writing music. <laughs> <laughs> Now that Dolby's in and and my rocket launcher is working the way I want and the gravel and the voices and all, you know, the AI, once all that's starting to work, it's like, okay, now how can I take that music that I did back in 1999 with the monk chant and the cellos? That was all done. See, okay. and that's why I knew I could relax because I knew I had sort of already made the right kind of frosting. I just need to know how much of it to make and where to put it. Sure. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and it's also something that was, I think, in your, and I remember kind of when you stopped, maybe stop being worried about the tech is the wrong word, but realize that the tech boat has sailed and that either Xbox will ship or it won't. <laughs> but <laughs> the team looks like they're on trajectory to launch. And at that point, I think, I, I remember feeling, you feeling like you could move from all these unknown things that you just didn't have a great grasp of to, like you said, writing and producing music, which is something that that is a very known thing for you. So I, yeah, I kind of remember thing this thing where it, we switched from having to worry about the tech to now. I, I didn't get so many, hey, Brian, where'd the 60B go calls anymore? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, no, that was, I stopped bugging you about everything. Um, I, I think... Becoming from a jingle composer background, uh, the ability to turn on a dime, produce something, you know, get a call at four in the afternoon and be in the studio at nine in the morning the next day. Um, that happened all the time. So I I was never worried about whether or not I could produce music. Now, it was more music than I'm used to doing on TV commercials, 30 seconds, you know, 60 seconds at the most. But it, it was really um, there were a few panicky moments producing the music, but it, it was never it was not as panicky for me personally as just feeling relaxed that the tech was going to work. So mm -hmm. yeah, Brian's right. Once once the tech ship had sailed and we felt good about that, it was just okay, all hands on deck. Just let's start making this thing. So when was that? When did you have that sense? Okay, the tech is good. I can just write. Was that? Two months before launch was that six months before launch Wouldn't well have been six I mean, months was it november november 15th? november 15 2021 or 2001 yeah 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 so uh it was probably june july-ish okay 
where <laughs> yeah. the majority of the music and all the stuff came together. And I've told this story before, but I'll tell it now. Um, we had all these in-engine cutscenes. We, like Brian was saying, we weren't like, okay, and now we're going to go out to this outside studio and have all these pre-rendered cutscenes that'll take up half the disc. We we did everything in the engine, so we had to figure out a way to flow into the cutscenes and have audio flow in, have audio flow out of the cutscene. We never, I never wanted to see, you know, a fade to black loading of a video and then fade back to black. We always wanted it to be very organic. And I'm very proud of what we were able to do with that. But those cutscenes were the last, most complex set of scripting, in-engine scripting. Mm. And those all came together so late in the process. So here we are. For a November 15th launch, you have to be, you know, gold. You, your code has to be done and tested what at least a month ahead, if not more, probably like at least six weeks for yeah. yeah. I mean, because you got to manufacture, you got to get the packaging, all that. No, it's you have to, it's just to a, ship yeah. them on the boats and all that good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we our deadline was in September. Okay, so the last thing to come was doing the sound design and music for all the in-engine cutscenes, of which there were thirty-three. I remember this number: thirty-three cutscenes. So. We had, they were all ready to go, um, and we had three days. He said, you got, it's like Marty and Jay, Jay Wineland, the audio, uh, my audio lead. It's like, you have three days to do, do the audio and music for these cut 33 cutscenes. So I sat with Jay. I said, okay, Jay, that's 11 a day. You got to do 11. I got to do 11. Let's start. Let's see where we are at the end of the day. Sure enough, end of that day, which was, by the way, a long day, he goes, yeah, I got 11 done, 11 in the can. And I said, I got 11 scores. Let's watch them. Oh, it was great. Oh, this is going to make, we can do this, 11. So we just have to do two more days of 11 a day and oh we'll, be, we'll be okay. The, day, the first day was September 10th, 2001. Oh, God. Wow. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I woke up, my wife woke me up on the next morning and she's like, something's going on. We walked, you know, I walked down the stairs, saw the TV and immediately we're, I'm watching. I think I watched the second plane go into the building and I called and Jay was at work. <laughs> Jay was at work working. And I said, Jay, what are you doing at work? He goes, we got to do 11 things. Ah! And I'm like, do you know what's going on? He goes, yeah, I know something's going on. And I'm so I. I didn't live very far from from the studio, so I went in. A bunch of the bungee creatives and producer guys were in a in a room, and I walked in. And I said, "Look, you guys need to go home. This is this is not a day for anybody to be working. I don't care what deadlines are going on. You need to go home with your family." So I told Jake, "I don't want to see you here. Go home. I'm going home." So he did, and I said, "You know what? Microsoft's going to give me an extra day or." I don't care. <laughs> and, you know, Bungie, it, we all have to have an extra day at least. And sure enough, by the next day, I was like, okay, the terrorists took a day away from us, but they're not going to take any more than that. So we still did it in three days. We just did it over the course of four days. September 11th was in the middle of it. Wow. Um, and yeah, I'll never forget that. That was just, what, what it made me realize, hey, this is just a game. This is just... Yeah, hardware. It's like 
dates on calendars, like yep. none of this stuff matters compared to what world events are going on right now and yeah. lives are being changed. So anyway, that's what happened. Yeah. And still by November 15th, you know, Xbox launch day, it was uh, it was a party. That was a huge party. How about for you, Brian? I mean, how did that feel like you for 18 months, I'm sure had very fitful sleep. <laughs> so what, 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 what was that like to launch? Was it still stressful for days or weeks after, or was it, it it's launched, I'm good? For us on the, the console team, it was, it was um, you know, we're done. It's launched. You know, the very, very last thing really kind of was the boot sound, except for host, you know, except for dealing with random little minor bugs and stuff that came up. Um, we still do a lot of education and reach out. Um, in fact, I was in England on September 9th, 2001. Oh. So I was within a couple, cause I wanted to get back for my birthday, which is on 9-11. Oh. So I wanted to get back for my birthday. And if I hadn't, I'd have been stuck in London for three weeks because, right, no planes flew for three weeks after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, again, as a, as a kind of a techie nerd who did a lot of console games and a lot of arcade games, the experience of sort of let's design a console sound system from scratch and put some cutting edge tech in it like Dolby and working with people like Marty on a launch title was, um, yeah, that, that's, that's a career highlight that, uh, that's, that's yeah, but don't, not, not don't a real follow up on that. I'm not going to I'm not going to let Brian get away with calling himself a techie nerd. He's a composer, <laughs> he's an amazing bass player. I mean just premier true. class bass player. Very he's a true. great musician. He's an incredible sound designer. I mean he's a he's a creative creative person who also happens to be kind of a genius on the tech side. So it's right. a it's a very unique uh set of skills in one person. So that's, yeah, if anybody wants a, to want some bass, uh, let me know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. There's some Bootsy Collins yes. right there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I used to play in a Funkadelics tribute band. So Bootsy, Bootsy was one of my heroes. Yep. Funkadelics. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it did change the world of gaming. I mean, you know, and, and obviously sound and. It's amazing to think about how different everything was before then. And I mean, Halo also, just the fact that it was a first-person shooter on a console, right? So it wasn't... That was there a big s- deal. Yes, so many things that were a big deal yeah. about that. Yeah, that- internally on the Xbox team, everybody was a little bit, really, FPS with with, a, with, with thumbsticks? Really? Not going to work? <laughs> but... Uh, well, we felt the same way. I mean, everything we ever had done up till then was keyboard and mouse. Yeah. We, you know, when we found out like Microsoft's going to buy us and we're going to be a launch title for the Xbox, we're like, uh, that's great. But how is this supposed to work? I mean, we had a Jamie Griezmann was the designer who's spent all his time figuring out how to make the Xbox controller thumbsticks feel good for the mm-hmm. player. And, um, that was no small task. As a matter of fact, I mean, you know, yes, Halo was a launch title, but Halo was not, especially with the marketing team at Microsoft, um, they did not think Halo was going to be the defining title that it ended up being. They really thought it was going to be much as Odyssey mm-hmm. or um, a couple of the other games, uh, you know, the football game. Uh, what was that? Uh, NFL Fever. 
Right, which uh, I love because my wife is a giant football fan, a giant Peyton Manning fan, and Peyton Manning oh. was on the cover okay. of, of that game. <laughs> and through proper connections for Christmas, uh, that next Christmas, my wife got a personally signed to Emily from Peyton Manning jersey. Oh, <laughs> nice. Wow. So that's why I was very happy about uh, to see Peyton Manning on the year. Uh, I mean, it was a pretty yeah. good launch lineup, but like nobody expected an FPS on a console to be the, you know, the mascot defining yeah. title. Mm -hmm. That was a surprise to everybody, including us. I mean, yeah. I knew it was going to be a good game. Um and I thought, well, you know, maybe we'll sell half a million or a million units. That'd be amazing, especially on a launch console. Uh, and maybe people will still play it six months or a year from now. I mean, those those were the kind of criteria, you know, the bars that if you could meet that, you were wildly successful. Mm -hmm. So our attach rate, Halo's attach rate, you know, how many Xboxes are sold, how many Halos are sold. We were almost one to one. Like Jeez. almost every Xbox, somebody bought a Halo copy, um, and that was unheard of. So the more successful Xbox got, yeah. the more successful Halo was, and vice versa. So it it was a surprise for everybody, and it was a welcome surprise. So. Yeah. Well, I think one of the great things about it too is you you definitely set a bar that said this is what Xbox games sound like. Yeah. Yeah. It's like. This is how you use surround, except for you know double bass. Too much bass. But this is the kind of thing that you can do, and right, that's why we put that tech in the Xbox is so that this stuff could happen. Mm -hmm. Right, don't just duplicate your music in the rears and say I'm a surround sound. Right, really make it a part of the experience and take all that tech that we did and whether it's filters on stuff or the DSP for reverbs and things like that. This is what you do. This is this is what this is why they spent the money on that sound chip is so that things like this can happen. And this is a you know launch title. Therefore, every game coming after that had better be at least that good. And see, mm -hmm. you you set an impossibly high bar, I think. There. Yeah. Well, uh, two two things. Number one, you think about Bungie's the creative team at Bungie was maybe thirty people. You know, the tech team that on the audio side of, of uh, Xbox was, what did you say, four or five people? Yeah, four or five people. I mean, we're talking yeah. about a really small, tight group of people. You're talking about a guy who's like Brian, who is not just a tech guy, not just some business guy. He's, he's a, a creative person. And yeah. so we had this really great uh confluence of you know creative and technology and we worked together and we were excited we didn't know what the possibilities were it's a moment in time that i'm not sure can ever truly happen again it's just business and high tech and game publishers it's just not set up to to encourage that kind of creative uh involvement yeah, it, together and it just I, was su such an amazing time and i i look back at it as like at the time we were doing it i don't think we realized what sort of a Camelot period we were in. In hindsight, you know, I've I've talked to Ed Freeze about this. It's like we all look back about like, wow, you know, this one thing, if this one thing hadn't happened, the whole house of cards would have collapsed. Yeah. And uh, it's just an amazing uh story, really. And and there's a bazillion stories like this about the Xbox. So yeah. it's pretty cool. I think circle back to what you said at the very beginning, right? You, you know, where Microsoft, you know, whether whether it was 
Robbie or Robbie Bach or or Ed, you know, let you do your thing, right? Even lock Bill Gates out of the building. <laughs> and the Jay Allard and the management team at Xbox let us push the rest of Microsoft. And there was no bureaucracy. There wasn't time for bureaucracy, right? They empowered people to make decisions. They trusted us to do what mm -hmm. they hired us to do. So we did it quick and we got it out. And, it, you know, here we are, you know, 24 years later, 23 years later, and it's a big thing. And I think that kind of speaks to you got to let people do what they do. If you bog them down in too many meetings and too much bureaucracy and yeah. too much, too many cooks in the soup and that, uh, you know, let Marty be Marty. <laughs> and you'll have something really cool. Yeah. Yeah, the 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 part that you just underlined about they just let you you could say no, we're not going to put Microsoft Office on the Xbox. You know, I mean right. just and how everybody wanted to latch onto it for understandable reasons and how easily any one of the suits in charge could have said Oh, just let them put it on there, you know, but they had right. the foresight to to do just what you said. Just let people do their thing and we'll make this amazing product and change the world. And that's that's yeah. exactly what happened. You know, one of these days it would be fun for the, the people who I, I well, of course, I want to be part of whatever the discussion is because I always do. But like Brian, myself and I, I would say Seamus Blakely and Ed Freeze. um, I don't know who else should be there, but I mean, just to talk about, because all of us had this different perspective and different set of like constraints or or problems that we were trying to solve and somehow it all came together. But I, I truly believe Ed Freeze was some sort of amazing firewall. Mm -hmm. um, and he certainly was a firewall for us at Bungie working on Halo. I don't know if he, if I think he did probably any part Jay of protecting Allard. for you. Yeah, Jay, Jay for you probably that for us. Yeah. Okay. He's like, so we should. Yeah, get I'll, I'll interface with the suits and um, I'll keep them out of your way and I'll make sure that no, we don't have to have nine months of meetings to decide on a sound chip because <laughs> we don't have that kind of time and I'll yeah. just trust you to do what you think you need, needs to be done. By the way, I, you've talked about this sound chip so many times. That sound chip was such a savior because, and Emily, you should understand how the console wars and how the uh, sound card wars and all these things happen. But on the development side, inside of a creative game studio, you know, maybe there's one audio person and then there's 20 artists, you know, and there's many game designers and there's tech technicians. So in terms of real estate on the tech, in the technology, the memory footprint, they're like, no, we need that for art. We need that for, you know, animations. We need that for all these other things that are, to them, the most important thing. And I would always be like, please, sir, can I have some more? You know, like, <laughs> I need a little space for the audio. And, you know, I need more CPU cycles to to work on the audio and give me more voices. So up until that point, we were always fighting. When Brian said, we're going to have a chip that's dedicated to nothing else but sound wow. and audio. Yeah. That was so spectacular because the artists and the and the programmers they tried. 
<laughs> Can't we use some of that? Yeah, can we use some of this, uh, especially one of the DSPs, yeah. Yeah, so I'm like, no, you can't. It's designed just for audio, so go away. And it was well, they, such a wonderful thing. By the time I, the Xbox 360 came out, it was like, oh, it's all the processor and memory and blah, blah, blah. Wasn't it all kind of like shared? And suddenly I went back into fighting with the artists about <laughs> Yeah. I actually had to do a due diligence on the original Xbox to say what would life be like if we had software audio on the original Xbox. I remember having to do that. Mm. And for 360, it kind of worked out because we just took over one core for audio anyway. <laughs> right, right. I remember that. But it was a, there was a point where yeah. maybe I was going to get half a core or whatever it was. Yeah. I don't remember. But I was like, oh, dang nowadays, it, Brian, where, where's yeah. my chip? Nowadays, I look, at like the, I look at like the Tempest architecture and the PlayStation 5, and it's like, Oh, we, we can do 5,000 HRTF voices and <laughs> um, literally, you know, this, the whole idea of streaming and memory is almost going away because the yeah. the drives are so friggin' fast. The SSD right. is on the PlayStation 5. Everything is streaming now. And it's like all of this stuff we used to have to deal with is just like, nope, don't have to worry about that anymore. These these kids these days, they don't know what we went through. They don't know what we did have to do. Uh, the Nintendo <laughs> Switch pulls off beat. some pretty janky stuff. The Switch does, you know, like getting a game like Tears of the Kingdom to run on the Switch, I heard, was pretty... I can believe that. It's yeah. um yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful game. I love it. Yeah. I'm addicted yeah. to it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, back in the 8-bit console days, the constraints that the creatives had were huge. Yeah. And so, but when the Xbox came out, it was like, oh, no more constraints. That's the way it felt. It felt right. so wonderfully creatively open for all of us creators. But you know, 23 years later, you're just like, wow, that is how did we ever do anything with that? It's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like <laughs> Well, pretty soon it was like, remember I said seven gigabytes was tons? It's like, yeah, pretty soon it's like, no, one DVD is not enough. And then Blu-ray, Blu-ray is not enough. And we need more streams and we need more of this. So we we still run into, into some tech things here and there. Yeah. And uh, what is, I think, uh, Call of Duty is um, 120 gigabytes or something like that to download or something. There have been some no, big it's ones. insane. Yeah. Yeah. Elden Ring Game, was pretty Game large. Game. Yeah. Yeah. Last year. Well, I was looking. I, I had to buy, uh, you know, one of these little SD cards for, I think it was for my Switch. Oh. And it was like 500 gigs or something. I forget what it was. And when it came, I'm like, oh, my gosh, look how tiny that is. I haven't worked with these things in a while. Yeah. I don't, I don't, you know, I, don't, I have an iPhone. I don't have SD cards and anything. So I put this in my, I tried to put this in the Switch and it didn't fit. I'm like, doggone it. I got 500 gigs. Why won't this fit? And it's like, oh no, this is the adapter for old for the little teeny stuff. tiny thing. Yeah, you open this up and it's like smaller than my fingernail. Yeah, I mean, you could like inhale and it would just go into your lungs. It was so small. I'm like, what? I don't even like. I, I feel like such a boomer because yeah. I am. But like, yeah. I remember the first one gigabyte drive that we had in the studio, and it yep. was like, yeah. you know, fan cooled and two rack spaces, and and it was a couple. It was a couple grand for that. Uh, Gigabyte I was. Drive I think it was like three grand. Yeah, wow. for, I've had one. And like you know, that whatever my, is like five hundred gigs CI on something this big. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Yeah, I used to pay two grand for now something that, that you give away at trade shows for free. right, right for free. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I've got a drawer full of old thumb drives from grad school. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I remember when. Yeah, when voiceover artists started giving me like branded thumb drives, right? You know, they would give me a yeah. little thumb drive because yep. their demo was on it. I'm like, oh, thanks. You know, and it's, you know, 250 yeah. gigs or whatever. And it's like they, they're used 30, 
megabytes <laughs> for their yeah. demo. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it's like po- potato chips. Those thumb yeah. drives are yeah. cost nothing. It's, it's just insane. It's insane. Any any last thoughts on? <laughs> I mean, I know there's probably so many more things to say. I mean, I'm here for you, but um, you know. Well, I would just say, you know, stories like this, uh, there's such a small audience for them. We probably lost most of the audience already. <laughs> um, sorry, Emily. But uh, right. <laughs> I mean, in, ter- in terms of the history of games, which I think is actually an important history, it's these kind of stories that that I hope um, get shared more and more because they're, they're, you know, there's real human beings that are behind all of these products from the games to the hardware. Um, and, and there's some amazing stories and I, I just would love to see more of these stories be shared and recorded because <laughs> they're great. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking exactly the same thing. It's uh, again, it's, you know, 30 years ago now coming up that, that this, some of this stuff is happening and it's, it's so easy for it to just get lost in the, in the annals and forgotten. And so it's, um, it's kind of a it's kind of a special time in video games the last couple of decades I think that some of the transformations that were made. Mm-hmm. So thank you Emily for being part of recording yeah, thanks this so for, much. The, for the three people who are still watching. <laughs> Such a pleasure and an honor really. And I personally when I think back on it am grateful that I experienced all those transitions in gaming as an adult rather than a mm-hmm. kid so that yeah. you can understand it different differently, you know. And I remember very, very well the first time I ever saw Halo. I remember the first time I played it. I remember the first time I heard it. Not all of wow. those things happened at the same time. But, yeah, okay. Uh, uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, that was that was a, an important time in, in the world. So I'm glad that you guys were part of it and that we got to chat about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Level with Emily. You can learn more about Marty and Brian, see a playlist, however small it is, and support Level with Emily at patreon.com slash level. You can find us on Discord too. That link is in the show notes. Uh, I would say check out the video of my chat with Marty and Brian on the Level with Emily YouTube channel if I had remembered to record the video, which I did not. So there is no video of this conversation. Please do subscribe to that channel though, because normally there is. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Hi. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at Level with Emily Threads, too. And learn more about us at levelwithemily.com, made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services. Composer Brad Gentle manages our YouTube channel. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media, Inc. Here at Level with Emily, we're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance. It features a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. You can hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.